Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 25. I'm going to read uh, from God's Word and ask us to give prayerful and careful attention to the Bible. Romans chapter 1 and from verse 21 through to 25. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. I don't know whether you saw this year's Super Bowl. I didn't see it uh, Sunday evening for reasons that maybe are obvious. Um, But uh, I enjoy catching up with the news afterwards. Apparently, 111.5 million people viewed it. It's the most watched sporting event ever. I almost said 111 and a half million people. Who would be the half person who watched? And as typical, during the commercial breaks, there's the usual competition for the most creative, fun, engaging, imaginative, original commercial. I I still love the one from a few years ago. Perhaps you saw it where there's this kid who's pretending to have Darth Vader-like superpowers. Do you remember that one? And the music comes in the background. He keeps on trying to get things to happen and nothing happens. And then his dad uses an auto start to turn on the car in the outside. He says, oh, it works. This year, my favorite was the U2 commercial. That was a high-energy, buzzed thrill. Well, here it is. What is it that really gets you going? that gets your heart pumping, your pulse racing, that makes you punch the air with excitement. What is that that gets you going? Now, the answer, according to Paul, for him, is God. The Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. That is, for Paul, God, the real true God, not the fake God of cultural Christianity or petty religiosity, But the God of the Bible, this God, is blessed forever. Paul is talking about his essential state. God, the real true God, is the kind of being who is eternally blessed. See, biblically, to be blessed, and we throw it out there without always thinking about what it means, but biblically, to be blessed means a statement of what is truly the best. That's a blessed life. That is, it is truly the best. He's a blessed God. That is, He is truly the ultimate best. 
Paul is saying that God is truly and actually the very best being in existence across all ages, times, and experiences, and generations. Now as then, tomorrow as today. He is, to use the term theologians, if you like this kind of stuff, or philosophers, the summum bonum. That is, he is, God is the highest good, the summum bonum. Or he is, according to the catechism, if you grew up in church, you have heard this phrase, he is the chief end. What does that mean? It means that he is the highest good. That is, he is himself truly and totally what is most exciting, thrilling, and best. And therefore, to know him, to know God, is to have the ultimate buzz, the ultimate thrill, because he is blessed forever. Now, that's where Paul's going in this passage. It's not a depressive rant. He's trying to exalt God and help us to see him. Paul is showing why worshiping God is bigger and better than anyone and anything else. That's what he's driving towards. And in that agenda, that goal, he is formulating a contrast. He is contrasting what it is to know God with what it is to not know Him. He's highlighting, as he puts it, this exchange. That is a contrast between who God is as blessed forever and all the other stuff that people often think is better and bigger but really is not. That means, this is how we'll know we have succeeded this morning in understanding these few verses. If at the end, we will have succeeded, if at the end we can say what Paul does, which is amen, or that is, I agree with this statement. I too agree that God is actually the most exciting being in existence always. And worshiping God is actually better than uh, any other ultimate agenda, anything else and anyone else. See, Paul is saying in this passage then that our behavioral issues, what we do or do not do, our discipleship issues, what we wish we would do and sometimes do not do, our commitment to Christ, our lifestyle, all this is really a worship issue. We need to see God for who He is as blessed forever and worship Him as such, and then everything else will follow from that worship. As surely as the converse is also true. Well, let me try and explain that to you. Worship God first, Paul's saying, because he is bigger than your brain. This is my way of summarizing verses 21 to 23. So look down with me at the Bible there, and you see that Paul several times indicates how foolish it is not to worship this creator God, but instead to worship the creatures. And this, those of us who have looked at the Bible will know that in some ways this is a familiar trope from the Old Testament, anti-idolatry rhetoric. But Paul is doing more than simply repeating Jeremiah or any of the other prophets that had anti-idolatry rhetoric. Paul is saying, actually, he's diagnosing. Paul is saying that idolatry is really arrogance. He is saying there's an intellectual pride that stands behind the rejection of the Creator God and the worship of the creatures. This great exchange is because they became futile in their thinking, for they claimed to be wise. There's an intellectual arrogance. Of course, it's foolish because actually they ended up rejecting the glory of the immortal God for images of birds and animals. Now, of course, this was part of Paul's world where there was idol worship everywhere. And it is part of ours. 
See, my friends, behind our sexual promiscuity is a neo-pagan idolatry. We worship nature in our culture today, not the Creator. We worship Mother Earth, not Father God. And what we are doing in our culture is we're exchanging the glory of the invisible and immortal God for the worship of the created world all around us. Now, people will tell us that this is a new development, a new age, a new statement of of a uh, emerging culture or something like that, but really it is actually old. It's a return of an ancient religion. Ancient paganism was based upon the worship of God within nature, of all the different gods of grass and field and stream and sun and stars. And essentially today, you see, this, this same spirit is now animating that current cultural rejection of the God of the Bible in our Western world. We are witnessing a campaign, a concerted campaign to return us to pagan origins. It's a neo-paganism that's really, in many ways, just an ancient religion being reborn and taking on new clothes and identities. And behind such pagan idolatry is actually an intellectual arrogance. That's what Paul was saying both then and now today. They're claiming to be wise but rejecting the Creator and therefore ending up worshipping physical nature rather than the Creator. Now, I was just sharing this with some of those folk in the new members class in a moment ago, but I come from a family of much intellectual interaction. My father went to Cambridge. My brother went to Cambridge. I went to Cambridge. My other brother didn't do so well. He went to Oxford. (laughs) I understand the attraction of intellectual arrogance. I have swum in those waters. And I also understand the grim disgust of intellectually weak defenses of the Christian faith. Sometimes when I hear people defending biblical truths in ways that are intellectually indefensible, I would rather they were just silent and simply read out the Bible rather than adding to it their ideas that cannot stand the test of any kind of examination of any sort of credible kind. But this intellectual arrogance of which Paul is discussing is more than that. It's more than intellectual confidence which rooted in the fear of God is a good thing, that kind of wisdom. It's more than that. A a woman came to a minister and confessed her sin. She said every time she looked in a mirror, she was captivated by how beautiful she was. That's not pride, madam, the minister quickly replied. That's poor judgment. Well, that sort of poor judgment is actually encouraged from a young age today. Jean uh, Twenge cites a preschool song where children are encouraged to use the tune, Frere Jacques, perhaps you know that tune, and to that tune to sing, I am special, I am special, look at me. <laughs> Just think what that does to the developing psyche of a person. Indeed, five psychologists examined the results of over 16,000 college students who took the narcissistic personality inventory between 1982 and 2006, and what they noted was a steady increase in the scores and a bent towards narcissistic behavior. In other words, 
behind neo-paganism, behind our worship of nature, is the worship of self. And that is fueled by an intellectual arrogance. For we exchange, as Paul puts it, we exchange the glory of the immortal God for images of ourselves. Now, as John Calvin put it, in every saint there is something irreprehensible, but that's not the point that I'm trying to make right here. I'm simply trying to help us understand Paul's arguments, (laughs) but it's of critical importance for our lives today. Paul is saying that rejection of the Creator is founded on intellectual arrogance, which is based in a fundamental pagan worship of self. Instead, he wants us to consider God, the glory of the immortal God. We might put it like this. We, you and I, my friends, need to become intimidated by God again. One of the early American presidents had this ritual. Each evening after a busy day as master of the universe from the White House, he and his vice president would go outside and look at the stars in the night sky, and they would observe the constellations, and the president would say something like this, the nearest star to us is Proxima Centauri, which is about 25 trillion miles away. They pause and think about that as they looked up, and then the president would say, well, now I think we feel small enough, let's go back in to work. In other words, if you want to solve your behavior problem, you need to solve your worship problem. (laughs) Someone said to me the other day that they were concerned after taking Bible 101 at college that they wouldn't have much much more to think about the rest of their lives. They know the Bible and that would be it. I I can tell you honestly, I feel like I've hardly begun to understand the first thing about the Bible. Read Augustine's Confessions. Read Bevinck's Systematic Theology. Get rid of those trashy feel-good books that are really Christian narcissism. Talk about God in a way that makes you feel as if He's just small letter G God. And instead, begin to get a view of God that makes you tremble with a secret thrill Every time you hear the name of the glory of the immortal God. Worship God first because He's bigger than your brain. Worship God second because He's better than sex. Now look down with me at verses 24 and 25, and I'm sure you all are now. See, this week, uh, as I said in an email out to the church, we're looking at uh, some uh, matters about sex because that's what Paul is discussing, and uh, we'll do it as well as we can. This week, in particular next week, we're delving into Paul's teaching about the physical and sexual consequences to worshiping nature rather than the Creator. What could be more important for us to consider today? What Paul is saying is that when we exchange... The truth about God 
we inevitably will create a society and create ourselves in our own image rather than in his image, and this will lead to a society which is increasingly sexually promiscuous. Here's the logic. The boundaries between who to have sex with and when to have sex with them will break down because those boundaries are predicated upon the boundary between who God is as the blessed God over all and creator of all and who we are as the creatures of that creator. That ultimate boundary distinction is broken down, and so the reflections of that boundary are also broken down, and we try to recreate ourselves. So we become increasingly like pagan Rome as we increasingly worship neo-pagan nature, inevitably. Now next week in particular, we'll be looking at homosexuality and addressing that contemporary topic with biblical fidelity and also gospel graciousness. But this week, we're looking at the topic that Paul introduces in these verses 24 and 25, namely, lusts, impurity, and dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Again, it's not meant to be a depressive rant. Paul is taking us somewhere. And we do not need to spell out exactly what it is that Paul meant by those coded terms. Why? Because anyone who has read ancient literature will know that every kind of lust and impurity that you could imagine in our contemporary world was just as prominent, if not more so, in ancient Rome. Now, Paul doesn't describe all that. He does not titillate his readers by describing those actions. But he does explicitly refer to them in order to be able to address them clearly and boldly. And that's the balance we too must walk today as we seek to have a right understanding of these things. Now, in particular, Paul is making the point that our sexual problems are really worship problems. Again, he's leading us somewhere. It is as we exchange the truth about God for a lie... As we begin to worship and serve the creature ourselves, our own narcissistic self-image, the nature world, not the creator of that world, that as we have that worship orientation to ourselves, from that flows all the other impurity and lust. In other words, Paul does not view sexual immorality as something that is susceptible to a program of behavioral modification in exclusion from a program of worship modification. See, Paul, when he viewed the idolatry of the ancient world, he drew a straight line in God's order of that world between their rejection of God and their embrace of lust. Now, he'd surely do the same in our world today. The narcissistic worldview which our culture has embraced, and you know the phrases as well as I do, you know, it's all about what you feel is good. It's about loving yourself. It's about having a positive self-image, well, and a positive God-image. It's about self-esteem, not esteeming God. It's about feeding your own self's dreams. And on and on and on it goes. All that 
leads by divinely ordered logical next steps to lust, impurity, and the breakdown of sexual boundaries. Now, if you have any doubts as to the validity of Paul's description of what's going on in our own culture today, just listen to some of the popular music. And as I mentioned, I listen to U2 and other things like that. Coldplay, by the way, great band. Um, but you listen to some of the music today and you'll have a sense of what's happening. M- much of the music today is not only singing about love and dating and not only singing about having sex, which it's been doing forever. It is singing about sex in a way that views sex as the ultimate, most thrilling thing possible in the whole universe. In other words, sex is being worshipped in our songs. We sing about sex as if it were God, for today it is. But God is better than sex. Now, I understand pastorally, and of course we all do, I suppose, at some level, the God-given desire within most people for sexual intimacy. And next week, I will, with apologetic force, but also pastorally, address the matter of those who struggle personally with same-sex attraction, as well as attempt to put it in a apologetic context for those who need answers to their friends' questions about such things. But this week, I am simply making the point that Paul makes in these verses, which is that God is blessed overall and is therefore to be worshipped above all, and that includes sex. However high you climb with sex, it will be over fairly quickly, if I may be so frank. You know, you might develop special techniques that prolong your experience and keep your body at that sense of thrill for a little bit further, but it will certainly not last forever. You see, there's something in sex which is designed to point us to the giver of sex beyond the gift of sex. Of course, it is a gift. It is good. But there's something that's designed to point to the giver of sex beyond the gift of sex. There is a doorway that it opens to an ultimate reality, but it's only a door. And those who worship sex rather than worship the one who gave sex are like people constantly opening and shutting the door, never actually going through that door. There is something worshipable about sex, hence in the old Um, marriage ceremony, it was said, uh, with my body I thee worship. That is, within the context of biblical worship, I am to honor with my body my spouse. There is something worshipable about sex, but it's designed to lead us to worship God who gave sex. But to worship sex itself, that, my friends, is bound to lead to disappointment and endless pursuit of another thrill or partner or experience or technique and on and on. You see, the problem we have is not with sex. The problem we have is with God or our view of God or our worship of God. You see, that's why when people are beginning to have problems with sex or pornography, their thrill in worship can start to fade. They're stuck in the doorway on the threshold, but they're not going through to experience God as He is 
in himself, the giver of sex. I mean, if sex is assigned to a higher reality, God himself, what must God be like? I remember one person I used to talk about these things with uh, some years ago would say to me somewhat jokingly but with a sense of truth to it as well that they thought that heaven was going to be like sex only better. (laughs) Well that's good news for those of us whose sex lives are disappointing isn't it? Or ended too soon? or a single and wish they were not. Sex is only a pale shadow of a far greater reality. But there's more to it than even that. If it is not only true that heaven is like sex, but only better, and we should add immediately far better, but that God, we could say, is in a sense like sex. The ultimate marriage in heaven, God is like sex, himself, but only better, and we must add far, far better. I mean, have you ever asked yourself this, how it was that some of the great early Christian leaders, people like Augustine, managed to move from a life of debauchery and sexual license to a life of sexual purity, and indeed, in his case, singleness? How did they do it? Was it iron discipline? I'm sure that was part of it, but what gave him the motivation for that iron discipline? What helped him to have the power to fulfill the motivational desire for purity? Surely it was God himself. When I was a child, I would play with a good friend for hours on end, imaginary games of spies or cowboys or space invaders from another planet or whatever was our latest exploration of what it would be like to be an adult in our childish imagination. Now I have children, a family, and a church, and a ministry, and I'm exploring the reality of which the childish games were but a faint shadow. In countries where there is very little snow, oh, wonderful, wonderful countries, <laughs> they uh, train people to ski with artificial ski slopes, the interwoven mesh down the hill, and you ski down it. It's a very poor relation to actual skiing, and there you are in the Alps or in Colorado. Well, it's hard to go back to artificial skiing again. I don't know whether Donald Trump enjoyed playing Monopoly growing up as a child, but perhaps he did. It wouldn't surprise me, given his real estate mogul adult reality. I doubt, though, whether Trump would exchange the Trump Towers for little red plastic hotels on a card on a square on a Monopoly board game. The issue is not our sexual promiscuity. The issue is our worship poverty. Daniel Craig is the actor who currently plays James Bond. Of course, the lifestyle of James Bond is not to be emulated, but in an interview, Craig says something interesting about risk. He noticed a recent study on rats that seemed to show that those which took the most risk lived longest. Craig said, basically, when you take risks, your heart rate goes up, you're more excited, and you have a great existence on this earth. He was probably arguing for 
James Bond-like lifestyle, and Paul is saying that that is nothing to worshipping God. In the center of Doctor Who's TARDIS, there's a perhaps almost living organism called the heart of the TARDIS that gives access to the time constant of the universe in their mythology and into which it's impossible to stay long and survive. Imagine the risk, the sheer thrill, the majestic splendor of staring into the face of the immortal God. Who could do that and live? None but those in Christ by the gospel that Paul preaches, that we preach us here, that then we can see that he is blessed and enjoy him forever. Worshipping God is blessed forever, is bigger than your brain, it is better than sex, it is more than singing a song, though it includes that. It is the risky commitment of everything that you have. Money and all. Money, of course, is a dearly loved idol in the subculture of comfortable cultural Christianity. It's an expression of our idolatry of ourselves and of our nature. We are called as Christians to give of all to Him, to give at least a tithe as an expression of our worship to His people, the church. Perhaps your worship of God seems so pathetic in your own experience when you come to church because what worship means to you is turning up but not actually giving your heart to which, according to Jesus, your money is a key expression. Worshiping God means taking the risk, the risk to commit at this stage in your life, young and old, to put it all on Him, to be all in for Him, to say with your body as well as your brain that God is all in all and you are His and you fall before Him in intimidated joy. Howard Hendricks said this, when your memories are more exciting than your dreams, you've begun to die. And we could add from Paul, when anything is more exciting than God, then you have an idol. And the inevitable result of that is intellectual arrogance. It fuels it. It results from it, which leads to sexual promiscuity or the breakdown of the sexual norm and experience rather than the thrill of joy, of enjoying the gift of intellect and body, both of which are gifts from the giver, in worship not of intellect or body, but in worship of God. Worship God because He is blessed. That is, He is, that is the statement of what is ultimately and truly best, the definition of what is ultimately and truly best. Amen? I don't know if you imagine it, but I imagine as Paul was writing, he's dictating, of course, we know he did that when he wrote his letters, and perhaps he's pacing up and down, overcome with emotion at this reality of the contrast between worship of self and worship of God who is blessed forever, and he immediately adds a, 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 a pious amen and, and hopes that as his letter is read out in the Roman churches, those hearing it read for the first time will add their amen together as he writes amen. 
Worship God because He is blessed. That is, He is what is ultimately and truly best. Amen? Worship God because He's bigger than your brain. He who tries to conceive God in their mind becomes inevitably, by definition, an atheist. Why, God as the creator of all, the maker of all, He's not against our minds, but He's above them. The sustainer of all, the one who gives meaning and life and causes consciousness and thoughts and conscience, who is the animator of every animation and action and activity, he is bigger than your brain. Amen? Worship God because he's better than sex. Let me say, those of us here who are disappointed with their sex lives, those who have been hurt in their sex lives, those who are obsessed by their sex lives, those who long to be free from sexual addiction, let me say this to you, God is better. He is a greater thrill. He is a higher reality. He is blessed forever. What is ultimately and truly best. So that we honor Him not only by knowing Him as a God, but by experiencing Him and acknowledging Him as the very best blessed being in the universe, even better than sex. Amen. Worship Him with your body. Worship Him with your money. Worship Him with your time. Worship Him with your brain. Worship Him with your talents. Worship Him with your heart's affections. Worship Him with your life. You will never, ever be disappointed. Not with God. You can give to God everything, and you cannot outgive God. You can give to God your life, and you will not be disappointed. No, why? Because God is blessed forever, and your life with Him will be blessed forever. Worship God in song. Worship God in life. Worship God in body. Worship God in truth, humbly submitting to Him as bigger than your brain. Worship God in spirit. Worship God through His Word. Worship God today, College Church. Rise to say, Amen. Let's stand together to pray. As the musicians come to lead us in our final song, you'll find it in our worship folder. I'll pray, and then we'll go straight into singing.
such lavish love and abundant beauty, best, blessed forever. Let's pray, our Lord Jesus. I pray today that you would help all of us to see you as truly blessed forever. That is the best thing, the best person, the best reality in the whole universe of whom by the gospel of Christ we may have free access to put our faith in Jesus, to commit again to him. I pray, uh, Jesus, that you would help us to see that you are bigger and better than anyone and anything else. For we pray it. In Jesus' name, amen.